Father, we thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day that uh, we could come together. Lord, you know, in Bangalore, Lord, right now, Lord, all the uh, war rains and Lord, chillness. But you have brought us, Lord, into your presence for the warmth of your word. We pray that your words, your scriptures will warm our hearts. The truth in the scriptures will not just be information for us to know something, to get excited. We knew about the revelation, the book of Revelation, but Lord, something that will impact our hearts, so God, a transformation. Paul said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Lord, we want your word to transform us by renewing our mind, O oh God, through your, Lord Master, through hearing your word. Bless us together, anoint pastor, and let every truth sink deep into our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Yes. We saw the message to the church in Ephesus, and uh, the message was very clear. The church was doctrinally sound. Uh, they knew all the doctrines, but the one thing that they lacked is the first love. Love for God was not there, and the message that came is, you have forsaken the love you had at first. If you have any questions uh, with regard to the message to the church in Ephesus, you can just uh, type it out in the chat box. Today we are going to see the church in Smyrna. <clears throat> it's not moving. Again. The church in Smyrna. Uh, Imagine that if you are a pastor, the church people are suffering from poverty and they are undergoing persecution and they are also being slandered by the people around them. Uh, what's the kind of uh, message? that you would like to hear from God. When the church members are in poverty, the church members are undergoing persecution, and uh, more than that, the members around them, the society is slandering them, finding fault with them. They are going through immense pain was built in Smyrna. So they... It is almost, this is, this is a city that was so loyal to Rome. And there was also a magnificent temple in honor of Emperor Tiberius. So there was a temple. So this loyalty of the citizens of Smyrna to Rome was unquestionable. No one doubted about it. They were so loyal. So at the end of this first century, when this letter was written, when John wrote this letter, uh, life was difficult. And it was not only life was difficult, it was dangerous to the church at Smyrna. Because we, we saw this letter was written during the time of Domitian. So during the time of Domitian, if anyone refuses to participate in the religious festivals or if they don't worship the emperor, uh, their life was in danger because they they could be executed and they also they executed people who refused to worship the emperor. Now, under these circumstances, the letter to Smyrna is the shortest letter. Of all the seven letters, the letter to the church in Smyrna is the shortest. I said the members of the church were poor, they are facing poverty, they were facing tribulations, persecution. Uh, they were being slandered by the society. But the letter was very short. 
their life itself was in danger. Our God is a God of comfort. We would expect that there'll be a lengthy letter to encourage people because their life was very uh, difficult. Interestingly, there is no condemnation in this letter. It is only to the letter to the church at Smyrna and to the, and the letter to the church at Philadelphia, we find no condemnation. There is only commendation. God is commending these people. Uh, he's appreciating them. He's telling them, you're doing great. He's telling them, I'm impressed by your faith. I'm, I'm so glad to see in the midst of such difficult situation, you have not left your faith. So there is only commendation. So the first verse that comes to us is from chapter two, verse eight. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Now, if I were to ask you, because the name of the author or the writer is not given in this letter, who is writing this letter, we don't know. So if I were to ask you, who is the first and the last who died and came to life again? Who is the first and the last who died and came to life again? You can type out your answers in the chat box. Um, we, all of us will not have any problem in identifying this is the exalted Jesus Christ because we have already seen the vision in chapter one. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but look, now I'm alive forever and ever. So it is very clear who is writing this letter. Once we know who is writing this letter, because I've already uh, told you the situation, people are poor, people are hungry, people are struggling. People are struggling to feed their children. They, there's no economic opportunities for them. Not only economically they're struggling, spiritually they're being forced to come and bow down before the emperor to take part in all the religious festivals. And not only that, their very life itself is in danger. So under these circumstances, what do you think will be the letter? What will be the contents of the letter? Uh, who is the first and the last who died and came to life again? Jesus Christ, loving God. So what kind of reply would you expect from such a loving God? People are struggling so much. Is there a word of comfort saying that I'll provide for you? Is there a word of assurance or encouragement? I will guard you. I will shield you. Is there a word like that? Is this not the normal thing that we would expect? We would expect God will, our God is a loving God, gracious God, compassionate God. So we would like to hear some words like, oh, my dear children, don't worry. Tomorrow I'll provide for you. I provided for the Israelites. I provided manna for them. Uh, don't worry. I will provide for you. Now, this, these are the kind of words I would expect because our God is a loving, gracious, and compassionate God. But uh, we will see that uh, what's the kind of reply that God gives to them. Now, when God, when Jesus says he's the first and the last, he's basically telling, I am there even before the creation. You know, I'm not the one who have been created. I'm the one who was there even before the world came into existence. So I transcend your time, your space, your creation. Now, this very phrase, when, uh, when God says, I am the first and the last, is supposed to bring comfort 
to the persecuted Christians. Now, this evening, as we are struggling with the pandemic, we are having so many challenges, whether this phrase, I am the first and last, whether that gives us comfort or not, because this phrase was intended to give comfort to the people who are undergoing suffering in the church at Smyrna. Now, we need to ask, when I hear that Jesus Christ is the first and the last, am I being comforted? Do I have that strength? I need to go through my struggles, my problems, my difficulties. In the midst, in the end, if I'm sick, in the midst of my sickness, whether this phrase, I am the first and the last, who died and came to life again, whether this gives me comfort, encouragement or not. We need to think about that. Now we go to the next verse. It says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Interesting. God says, I know your afflictions and poverty. Any child, if the father says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, the child will expect, of course, you know my, you know the afflictions and your poverty. What are you doing about it? Don't you think you should release me from these afflictions and your poverty? Those are our normal human questions. But, uh, but God says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. You are poor, yet you are rich. <clears throat> How you are rich? I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, what is meant by a synagogue of Satan? What is meant by a synagogue of Satan? As we go through this verse, we will get the answer to that question. What is meant by a synagogue of Satan? Meanwhile, what comes to your mind? when Jesus says, people who are slandering you are a synagogue of Satan. Now, this, uh, this vision tells us that God knows every detail, everything that happens in every home he knows. He knows their afflictions and their poverty because he knows there is no food, because he knows people are struggling. So, the, and he also knows they're suffering because of persecution and they're being persecuted only because of their faith, not because they're criminals. They're being persecuted just for the sake of their faith. So why do people uh, in, in Smyrna uh, have to face such kind of hostility? There are at least three reasons why they were facing this difficult situation. Now, initially itself, I said there was a temple for, in honor of the emperor. So the city was a leading center for the cult of emperor worship. It was leading center. Now, the citizens, citizens were good citizens because they were obeying all the civil laws of the emperor. They were paying their tax on time. They were following all the road rules and whatever was required of them, they were following it. It is not that they were bad citizens or uh, they were criminals. No, they were law-abiding citizens. But the problem is, though they they refused to take part in ceremonies connected with emperor worship. They said, we can't be part of this. So this was one of the reasons, one of the reasons why they were suffering from poverty. Though they willingly submitted to the emperor's civil authority, they refused to take part in ceremonies connected with emperor worship. Now, what is the second reason?
is religion, you are considered as a social outcast. You are not social. The first stigma that comes is you are not social. You know, people in IT companies, when they refuse to drink, the first comment they hear is you are not social. Same way, they also have this very same comment that uh, you are not social. They were not social because much of their social activities revolved around pagan religion. That's the reason why they were not social. So they were always, if you don't take part in social activities, if you're in a college, you know, when students smoke and you don't smoke, you are considered as, as though you're an antisocial. That's the way people will treat you. And that's the way the citizens of Smyrna or Christians of Smyrna were treated. Now, it is from the pagans. Now, the third reason was they, Christians face the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, Jews, by law, they were exempted from taking part in these pagan activities. But though they were exempted, what these Jews were conspiring against Christians is they were telling the people in authority, these Christians are not Jews. They are actually, they are working against the emperor. So the slander was not only from outside, from the very Jewish community, people who held the Old Testament in their hands, they were complaining about these very people. They were telling their, their agitators, they are opposing the civil authorities. Now comes the word of God. You know, I am the first and the last. What is the kind of word you would give to your church like this? If you were to give a word of encouragement to this church, what will be your word? Now you can see what's the word that comes from the first and the last. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life, your life as your victor's crown. Now, this is the question for all of us to think, from where do we get the reference to 10 days? You will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, you know, and, People are in prison those days, at least on the charges that the Christians were facing. When they go to prison, the next step that they can, ex they can expect is execution. When they step into prison, they can keep expecting, I'm going to be executed at any time. That's, that's the kind of situation they faced. Now, here, the first and the last says, you will suffer persecution for 10 days, it's okay. But be faithful even to the point of death. In other words, he says, your suffering will not end in 10 days. You are going to face much more, but be faithful to the point of death. This is the letter that comes to the Christians and Smyrna was suffering you be faithful. Uh, now, from where do we get the reference for 10 days? It is just a symbolic reference. If you have gone through the Bible, where do you find the word 10 days? If you have come to the book of Daniel, do you remember in Daniel, there is a reference to 10 days? Probably this is a reference taken from the book of Daniel. Daniel will tell, uh, please test your servants for 10 days. When they were being served food from king's table, Daniel and his three friends will say, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. But that, that test did not last only for 10 days. 
Daniel and his friends faced much serious tests after that. This was only a beginning. So even in people in Smyrna, God is telling them you're only going to face problem for 10 days means something more is yet to come. Something more serious is yet to come. This is the answer from the first and the last. So Christ is telling them, be faithful, faithful to the extent of giving up your life. For all of us, if something is most precious, that will be our life, our individual life. Because I have seen when I was uh, in a boat accident, uh, there were families you know, along with uh, me in that boat. When the boat was about to capsize, the first things the husbands did was jump into the water. Okay, by God, I didn't know swimming. I couldn't have jumped, but of course my wife was not there. <laughs> I was alone on an official trip. But I saw the tendency, whenever somebody's life is at risk, the first human reaction is to save yourself. So life is more precious. And God is telling the people in Smyrna, you know, you be faithful till the end. Now, God is forewarning, forewarning them prophetically also. It is not only you are going to face persecution in the days to come, you will face much more persecution. And this is a letter people in Smyrna would have read. You know, if, if you're a Bible college student, you would have definitely heard this name, Polycarp. Polycarp was a bishop of Smyrna. Now, history says that Polycarp was appointed as Bishop of Smyrna by the Apostle John. John himself appointed Polycarp as Bishop of Smyrna. So in Smyrna, what we read now, that persecution only increased. It never decreased. So when they uh, arrested Smyrna, uh, when they arrested Polycarp on charges of not being loyal to the emperor. You know, they saw this old man and the people in authority felt very sad for him. He was 86 years old and his face was radiant. They say he was, he looked like a saint and the people were pleading with him. What do you lose? You just say that you renounce Christ and you just accept the emperor. We will, you will not be put into any trouble. They plead with him. They say, we don't want to put you through this agony. You know what, Poly, uh, what Poly, Polycarp replied? 86 years have I served him and he never did me no wrong, no any harm. How then can I blaspheme my king my, and my savior who saved me? This was his answer. And then the punishment for Polycarp was that he will be uh, set up, set on fire. So the procedure those days was they will nail him to a plank so that when they put him in the fire, he will not run out from the fire. So Polycarp will tell them, don't worry, I'm not going to run out of fire. You don't have to nail me. You just do what you want to do. And this is the reply he gave to those people. You threaten me with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come do what you will. Can you imagine a reply like this? This reply has come because Polycarp has read the letter that John wrote to the church in Smyrna. Not only Polycarp has read this letter, he has pondered over it and he was ready to face the situation. Now, when I said that this is a letter from the first and the last, and he's writing an encouraging letter, the risen savior is writing an encouraging letter to the people in Smyrna. 
Now, our way of solving problem is, you know, is poverty, you give him more money, more, there's no, I'm not saying we should not help, but give him, somehow rescue him, take him to a different place, put him, protect him, uh, that is human attitude. But here Christ is telling us something else. Christ is telling that I am the first and the last. You know, I died, but now I'm alive. alive. I am the living one. <clears throat> now, if we can grasp this truth, I am the first and the last. I died, but now I'm alive. If we can just grasp this truth, and if this Christ becomes precious, then anything else, then probably we'll be able to follow the footpath of Polycarp. We'll be able to stand faithful. If anything else in this world becomes more attractive than Christ, we will fail in this faith walk. Anything else, that includes my life. If my life becomes more precious than Christ, I will not be able to be faithful till the end. And Christ says, no, please know that I am the first and the last. I died once, but now I am alive. When we say, I am the living one, that should give us hope. I am the resurrection and the life, that should give us hope. Our life doesn't end here. It is a very, very short journey here. So when we know, when we understand the meaning of our life. Our life is when we live with Christ, that gives the meaning. We find the purpose for living in this world. The things of this world will not be attractive. Things of the world will not come any way closer to Christ. Christ is supreme and I want that Christ. That's the encouraging letter Christ writes to the church in Smyrna. I am the first and the last. Will you take some time to meditate on this one phrase, I am the first and the last. What does it mean? What does it imply for me personally? And knowing the truth, how can I lead my life in this world? So then God gives them that promise. If you are faithful, I'll give you the victor's crown. Now, Victor's crown <clears throat> is, trans there are two Greek words. One is diadema, which means a royal crown. The other is stephanos. Stephanos is another Greek word, joy and victory. The crown that is promised here is nothing but joy and victory. Anytime you have Christ in your life, you will always have joy and victory. So the, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Now, in verse 11, uh, this crown of life appears even in James 1.12. You can just make a note of it. In 1.12, you have the crown of life. Now, in Revelation 2.11, it says, that's the last verse in this letter. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. What do you understand by the word second death? What is the second death? When do we die? When do we face the second death? This is the promise for the people in Smyrna. In fact, this is the promise for Polycarp. Polycarp knew I'm going to face this death. I will not die for the second time. So what is that second death? Because second death cannot hurt, cannot hurt us at all. When we take our last breath on this earth, that is our first death. And the unrepentant sinners will have to face the second death. Those who are in Christ, will not face the second death. So I'll quickly give you a few references where you find uh, the phrase, the second death. Revelation 26 says, 
blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. Are we even contemplating about the second death? Second death has no power over them. We are struggling with our first death. Faced with life and death situation, we are more concerned about the first death. We should be concerned, life is precious. But are we aware that there is a second death? So for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, second death has no power over us. Revelation 20, 14 says, then death and hates were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. You have in Revelation 21, 8, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Uh, Revelation 21, 8, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the wild, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second. Now, Jesus Christ also, you can just make a note of the reference. Jesus Christ also said in Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That is more serious than the first death. A death of soul and body in hell is more serious and more horrible than our first death. In Luke 12, 4, 5, it says, I tell you, from my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This is a church where people were undergoing poverty, persecution, slandering by their neighbors, by, by the society. And God, Christ, is aware of all their pain, persecution, problems. But Christ is telling them, I am the first and the last. I am the first and the last. This phrase, I am the first and the last, should give us courage, should give us hope. This phrase, I am the first and the last, should make us run after the first and the last. Not after anything else, we will run after Christ, who is the first and the last. And this is the letter to Smyrna, the shortest letter, no condemnation, only commendation. Now we move to the next letter, because in the map, after Ephesus comes Smyrna, then comes Pergamum. Uh, so the messenger will go to Ephesus first, Smyrna second, and to Pergamum third. Now Pergamum was a famous and prosperous city, no doubt about it. And it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. So it was an important place as far as politics is concerned. Now, educated people lived in this place because they had a huge library, two lakhs, handwritten volumes. Now, the problem with this education is when you can be enamored by the education, by the philosophies. You know, the philosophies of man will always be interesting, enticing. We, must, we will almost believe that this is true. When we read the philosophies of human being, you will always be attracted. So this is a place where their mind was more filled with earthly knowledge. Earthly knowledge always draws you out of, uh, will keep God out of your life. If you are smart, intelligent, and if there is no reference to God, you tend to behave like God. Meaning to our life comes only from something which lies outside this world. 
nothing can give meaning to our life within the existing system. It is only when a light comes from outside, we will be able to find the meaning and purpose for our life. You just shut, down, shut that door, you shut the door of light that comes from outside, you try to find meaning in, in the, within the world, you will end up writing more books. You will end up coming with new philosophies. You will think you are smart, but then you have to face the second death also. This place was so well known for its education. The very word parchment comes from this place, Pergamum. This, the, the history says probably they discovered this, uh, the material for the parchment material. That's the writing material. That's how we have got the word parchment from the city. This is a strongly a pagan city. Devil is always interested in distorting the truth at 39th decimal. He will keep bringing philosophy after philosophy. So this was a strongly uh, yeah, yeah, pagan city. Education without reference to God will produce many more gods multiple gods and the city was like that there were number of temples that were devoted uh, to various gods but there was one particular god whom they worshipped that is zeus they had a huge altar to zeus and that, that's the zeus is known as the sky and thunder god if you see a structure like that, is it not intimidating? It is intimidating. It will be attractive. Remember, the worldly religions will always keep creating bigger and bigger structures. And if you, if you get carried away with, their, with the worldly structures, we will go wrong. You, you just look around the world. If they want to provocate something, there'll be huge structures. St statues height will reach the sky. So that, remember what they are doing is, they are trying to rule the world in and through these symbols. Now, on, there was a huge platform for, uh, this altar to Zeus was a huge platform and sacrifice was made 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day, sacrifices were burnt on that altar. So people from a long distance can see the smoke coming out from this place. And if, if you're in Pergamum, you can also smell that. Like barbecue, you say nice smell is coming. So people in Pergamum also enjoyed that smell. They got used to that smell. The reason why they wanted to do this, they wanted to keep the supremacy of Zeus. So he is the superior God. So they wanted to keep the supremacy of this. Now, this is a highly educated place. So you will find a lot of intelligent people. Um, now, where do you find this insignia? Have you seen this insignia? Have you seen this symbol anywhere? So this, yeah, yes, somebody said something. Can I hear that? Medical. Medical, yeah. correct. You are correct. And beyond that, do we know something more than that? Uh, it's Moses. Moses, Moses lifted up the rod, right? Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> the, the <clears throat> here is basically, this comes from Asclepius, the god of healing. Asclepius, the god of healing. Now, this is the way the god Asclepius holding that symbol. Uh, in the medical world, they use the word caduceus to denote the symbol. That's, we don't have to worry about that. Uh, now, 
in the temples, they had something known as sanatorium, or we can call it something known as hospitals. The temples were, the hospitals were attached to the temples. Sick people will come and they will stay there. And the faith is the snake will come and touch them and they'll heal them. As I was thinking about this, I feel there may be testimonies because otherwise you cannot have sick people going all the way to that place and lying there. There may be some testimonies saying that, yes, I had this sickness, the snake came and touched and I was healed. Uh, so this is the kind of place in which Christians were living. Remember, in this world, you will always get solutions from different places for your problems, for your difficulties. Be careful not to run everywhere just for the sake of a solution. Listen to me, listen to this once again. In this world, you people will always offer solutions for all your sickness, for all your problems. If you go here, they'll heal you. If you go there, they will give you a word. You come and do your magic, your problem will go. You do this, your problem will be solved. But don't run after that. Whether it, it's true, it may be true. It may be true in this temple also. The snake must have come and touched people and they got healed. It may be true. But it doesn't, it is not the truth. The truth is, I am the word. I am the word. I am the way and the life and the truth. We should always focus on that. So this is what was happening. And John is particularly using this particular symbol um, and he's calling, his, calling it that ancient serpent called the devil. He's referring this snake to the snake in Genesis chapter three. And he's telling that the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Now, here we, in this letter, we here see that I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. So this place was a horrible place. Though it was economically prosperous, it was a horrible place. So Revelation 2.12 says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now, who has the sharp double-edged sword? If you have read the, uh, you know, the vision in Revelation chapter 1, we all know who was having this sharp double-edged sword. It was Christ. The risen Christ was having the sharp double-edged sword. Now, every phrase that he uses in these letters, the introduction, it also gives us the context of the church the context so from this very thing we can say who has the sharp and double-edged sword it gives us the context that it's going to be a war because in the old testament or apocalyptic literature when you find this word it always symbolized when you find the word sword it always symbolized judgment or war so Jesus, by way of introducing himself as one who has the sharp double-edged sword, I will judge you. I will fight for you. Though there is a, you know, there, there is a throne of Satan, I will fight for you. Now, this basically in this place, uh, there's a reference to the local worship of the emperor. The emperor was worshipped as God and God says, I will come and fight. And we know what happened to the state of Rome or to the kingdom of Rome. What happened? We all know that. Now, the problem when state involves in religion is, so here all are supposed to bow down or take part in these emperor festivals. Anytime anyone refused to take part in these festivals, 
they are considered as disloyal citizens. Don't you see that trend even today? When we refuse to take part in certain things, uh, we will be considered as anti-nationals. We will be considered as though we don't love this country, as our very patriotism will be doubted and questions. And these people were asked to eat the meat that was offered there, and they said no, and it was not easy for Christians to live in that country. They had a lot of problems. And in the midst of all this, there was one Antipas who was killed. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. So Satan has throne is basically the emperor worship. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Not even in the days of Antipas, faithful witness was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, history says Antipas was probably a church leader. And he was put to death. You know, if you want to destroy an organization, you don't run after the followers. You run after the leaders. If you can kill the leaders, then that organization will just disintegrate. So same way, these people also killed Antipas, who was considered to be the leader of the church. They put him to death. And it is shocking to read, he was roasted to death. People would have watched that. Despite Christians would have watched. His church members would have watched. Despite that, they did not give up their faith. That's what Christ is commending them. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas. Means now Antipas was roasted. Next, it will be my turn. In the midst of that, they did not renounce their faith. So Christ is commending them. So we come to 14 and 15. Nevertheless, although you did not renounce this faith, I have a few things against you. These are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who have who hold to the teaching of Nicolaitans. Now, I told last time when we came across the phrase Nicolaitans, I'll be, be explaining to you today. So today we'll see how we can understand the word Nicolaitans. Balaam, we all know the story of Balaam. Uh, how he seduced the Israelites into sexual immorality with Moabite women. And he, uh, in the process, they also ate the sacrificial meal and bowed before their gods. Now, this is Balaam was a very famous ancient figure who not only figures in the Bible, also in the other texts. So Balaam knew if you can somehow make these people compromise their ethics, then their God will leave them. So their ethics, uh, if you just attract them, towards sexual immorality, God will leave them and they will be punished and they will be defeated. That was the because Israelites were never defeated till such time. They knew how they had victory after victory, not they had greater weapons, but God was with them. Now he's linking Balaam to Nicolaitans. Likewise, in the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, from Balaam, we can study that these Nicolaitans were talking about loose moral teaching. Now, from where do we get this word Nicolaitans? Probably it is from Acts 6 5. You know, there were seven deacons, and one was known as Nicholas. And it is not sure whether Nicholas, whether Nicholas preached a very liberal kind of preaching or whether his followers perverted his teaching. We don't know. 
So we need to be careful about our understanding, our teaching. Teaching the word of God is the greatest thing. I know to follow the word of God rightly should be the motive of every Christian. Not what is attractive, what is easy, but what the Bible says. Because all of us can go wrong. Our mind, if it is not well checked, we will also fall into the wrong teaching. So the Nicolaitans also somewhere, they propagated, it's okay, you can go and take part in those pagan teachings. You can go and take part in those religious festivals. You can eat, you can lead a loose moral life. Uh, that's what we find in the church in Pergamum. When we find, when we come across the word sexual immorality, we should not, we should not always think that it is a physical act that's referring to. Uh, it is just when we leave God, you know, God says, I have betrothed myself to you. So whenever we are not faithful to God, it's considered as immorality. So we should not take it strictly as like that, uh, but it could also mean that. So then the message comes, repent therefore, otherwise I'll soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now here, Christ is going to fight against the people in the church who have departed or who are holding on to lose moral values, which is, which is, very, uh, which is very fearful. So tolerating wrong teaching our sexual immorality in the church is not a virtue, but a sin. You know, as a pastor, this is a challenge the pastors always face. You know, God is a loving God. What should we do in a church context? So this letter gives us the guideline that a pastor should not tolerate wrong teaching. A pastor should not tolerate sexual immorality in the church. Those two things a pastor should not tolerate because it is not a virtue, it is a sin. So you need to understand the role, the delicate role the pastors play. And you should not be quick to judge the pastor. pastor pastors, wherever you go, pastors are having a very delicate role and a difficult role. And when they face situations like this, you know, you'll always say, pastor could have done this, pastor could have done that. But the word of God clearly says, you should not tolerate that. So then 2.17 says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit said to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it. God promises that he will give them hidden manna. We all know that God fed the Israelites with manna. So God says, if you stay faithful, I will give you some of the hidden manna and I'll give you a person a white stone. Those days, a white stone was considered very valuable because they used different colors, uh, pebbles of different colors for different purposes. If you were to be admitted into a club, you are supposed to have a particular color pebble, then only they'll admit you. And when a judge passed a verdict, when he used a white color pebble, that shows he was innocent. And when he used a black color pebble, uh, that shows he's, he's convicted. So it is a new white stone with a new name written on it. And so what is the significance in change of name? Because it says a new name written on the white stone. So what is the significance in change of name? We again go back to the Old Testament. We know in Genesis 17:5, no longer will you be called Abraham. You will be called, you, your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. So a new name, come, uh, new name comes with a new promise, a new blessing. Okay, I have finished the letter to Pergamum.
if you have any questions, you can ask. Any questions you have? Uh, uh, can someone, uh, Pastor, can you just read the questions if there are any questions? Oh, not yet, Pastor. Not yet. No questions have come now. Okay. Anybody has any questions? So we have finished the letter to the church in Smyrna and we have finished the letter to the church in Pergamum. Would it, would it be okay to say that the promises that were given to the people in Smyrna, that we can also apply it to ourselves? Or was it very specific only for them, only for that period of time? Or would it be okay to generalize and say that it's still valid for us in this present age? I am the first and the last. It remains the same. And when our love for the first and the last is more than our love for the worldly things, that promise holds good for us. So the promises are always there. That the, the, the crown, it is not only to those people who lived at that particular time. Was it not given to Polycarp? Polycarp was not living, uh, he was living at that time, but when he was martyred, that was somewhere around AD 165 or so. So he knew that crown of life, that crown will be given to him also, and he will not be hurt by the second death. So today, if I remain faithful to the first and the last, I will not be hurt by the second death. And that promise is applicable to everyone. So there's a question uh, asking more on Nicolaitans, please. Uh, Nicolaitans, as I said, that the, it comes from those seven deacons, one of whom was known as Nicholas. Uh, so he probably, we are not very sure uh, whether he distorted the teaching or somebody else. Nicholas from Antioch, it says in Acts 6.5. But what we can make out is after Balaam, it is, it's, we have the word likewise, likewise. So it has got to do something uh, to do with uh, eating of food in uh, in the temples and also it it's connected with love for money Balaam was greedy for money so love for money and some kind of a loose moral behavior because the teachings themselves are not enumerated in the bible but we can safely deduce we can safely deduce that it was something similar to the teaching of Balaam or the life of Balaam. Pastor, um, Pastor Silvan has asked, is the teaching of the Nicolaitans similar to the present-day hyper-grace teaching? Uh, we will not um, uh, say Nicolaitans preached hyper-grace. We will not say that. Uh, we can only say that it was a distorted teaching. It was a wrong teaching. So if hypergrace does not conform to the word of God, it's a wrong teaching. Any teaching that does not conform to the word of God is a wrong teaching. So we can classify it as wrong teaching. Pastor, uh, another question. What is the significance of hidden and hidden mana? Oh, uh, hidden mana, you know, even during Jeremiah's time, the, we all know the story that when the ark was there, the Aaron was asked to keep some mana inside that. And by the time of Jeremiah, that mana has disappeared. So the Jewish traditions, uh, it says that Jeremiah has hidden that mana somewhere or some angel has hidden that mana somewhere. So towards the end, that mana will be given. 
Now, for we Christians, the hidden manna refers to the spiritual blessings that we have uh, in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, you know, you have been blessed in all the spiritual blessings. So hidden manna refers to those spiritual blessings uh, that we find in Ephesians 1 and 3. All the blessings and benefit of knowing Christ. If, if uh, our entire endeavor should be to know this Christ more and more, the first and the last. If our, if we, the more we know him, you know, we, we are being blessed with so many blessings. We are rich. We may not have money, but we are always rich. That's why the Bible in that letter to Smyrna, it says, you are, you are poor, you are undergoing persecution, yet you are rich. When, Christ, when we have Christ in us, we are rich. It is incomparable Christ. That is hidden manna. And also, does change of name, uh, which equals to new blessing, is this a general principle or one specific to Abraham? You, it is in the Old Testament, if you're going to uh, connect it with the present day, when somebody comes to Christ, you change his name. Uh, it, is, it is not that. Uh, but in the Old Testament, the change of name was given by God. Uh, for Abraham or Sarah, the name was given by God. Uh, Jacob. Uh, so, uh, should we follow the tradition for changing the name of the new converts? No, I won't recommend that. That's not that. But here it says that you will be given a white stone. White stone, when it's come, it will come after the first death. A new name is given not while they are living here. A new name comes after their first death. Uh, Pastor, we uh, saw that there is an Antipas, right, in Pergamum. Yeah. So, uh, it's, it said that it was a worldly church and followed all those uh, uh, rituals and all that. So was he also one among them or was he a, a righteous person? No, 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 no. He, he, Antipas was commended for his faith. He was one of the church leader who did not compromise his faith because he did not compromise his faith, because he refused to take part in the festival, pagan festivals, he did not worship the emperor. They had a, a temple for the emperor. He, since he did not worship, he was put to death. As I told you, he was roasted to death. God is calling him faithful. He was faithful till the death. Because he was a leader, he was put to death so that the followers will be scared and they will renounce their faith. So he was faithful till the death. So in there fact, might have been more believers like him in the church as well. I can can you just repeat, Rachel? So there might have been more believers like him in the church in that same church. Yes, yeah. yes. What what does the verse says? The verse clearly says. You did not renounce your faith in me. Those are the believers. Not even in the days of Antipas. So there is a commendation for the believers in Pergamum that they did not give up their faith. The believers did not get scared. Yeah. Okay, next one will next will be my turn, but I would still hold on to my faith. Have we finished, Pastor? Any more questions? No, no questions. Okay. Uh, you keep reading, pondering over this. We can learn so much from these uh, letters. Uh, I just want to make this announcement about this Saturday. This Saturday, not next Saturday, this Saturday. After Thursday, Friday, Saturday. August 8th at 7.30 p.m. Daniel in the lion's den and inspiration to Christians. All those who are interested, your friends, young people who would like to be part of this, uh, you can invite them. Uh, it will be the same link and the same password that you have used today. You will have the same thing. So same link, same password, same ID. 
Uh, see you all on August 8th, Saturday, 7.30 p.m. Continue to pray for me as I prepare this talk. Shall we all say this as our closing prayer? Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve him, his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all for joining. Have a blessed week. See you all on Saturday. If you have any questions, you can always uh, send it to me.